I had a phone call with a young man uh, last week, a fellow that we'd had opportunity to disciple and, and spend time with him, and, and I had a sense that he uh, needed some encouragement in his faith. And so I sent him a text, and he texted me right back right away, and I said, if you'd like to, we could talk on the phone, and he said he'd love that. And so we had a phone conversation. During the phone conversation, he said, to be honest with you, Pastor Pierpont, my, my faith is kind of weakening a little bit. I, uh, and I said, well, well, why do you think? And he goes, well, you know, he has new, has, he's married, and now he's bought a home, and he has little children. And he said, part of it is I've been distracted with all the stuff that has been in my life. But he said, but part of it is I took this course in college, and the professor just asked me a lot of really hard questions, and he kind of really rattled my cage in my faith. He said he really he got me doubting things that I never thought I would doubt. And he said, so I, I met with some pastors, and I read some books, and I kind of fortified my, my faith a little bit. But he said, he really shook me up. He said, I talked to a friend, and the friend said, yeah, that guy actually has a secret tally sheet about how many young people that he has personally turned away from their childhood faith. Well, that's the kind of world we're living in. We used to, we used to think, well, we live in a Christian America, and in a very real sense it was a Christian America. And then we went through that phase. Remember we talked about the post-Christian America. And, and most of us would have to admit that's, what happened? Well, now we're in a new time, and it's the anti-Christian America that we're living in. When covenantally, our land more and more is turning against the things of God. In our highest courts, in our executive branch, in the judicial branch, and legislative branch of the government, and local governments are passing laws that they know are contrary to God's law. More and more, there's prejudice against Christians. More and more, there's pressure against Christians, and you can expect that there's going to be persecution against Christians. And so, how do we endure faithfully when we feel a persecution coming, when we feel pressure and prejudice coming, when people are trying to erode our faith? And you know, and here's the thing, in my family, I've often been really conscientious about this. Look out for those people outside that are trying to harm the faith of my wife, myself, my children. And to be very candid with you and very honest, it really hasn't been the outside that's been the biggest problem. It's been the inside. And so we have both of these things, right? You have the possibility of pressure from outside, pressure, prejudice, persecution, leaning against your faith. Then you have your own sorry self to deal with, right? You have your own sin, kind of like indwelling sin. And you have your own tendency to compromise. How do we keep from compromising? How do we finish faithful? That's what our text is talking about. That's what Revelation is talking about. Let's read our text today. Revelation 1, 4-8 is today's text. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye shall, will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of the people and work in my heart as we just concentrate on your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's really a great idea to know who the author is and who the audience is when you're studying any passage of Scripture. It's super important to know, well, who wrote this and who did he write it to and what were the circumstances? And we've been spending a couple of weeks talking about that. But one of the things that I would like to emphasize today is there was a person behind this. There was, there was uh, Caesar Nero who persecuted the church. He was famous for persecuting the church. But about the time of this writing of Revelation, it was Domitian. And Domitian was bad news. He was a profane and godless person. He was sexually immoral in the worst kinds of ways. He got his own, he seduced his own niece, got her pregnant, de- demanded that she have an abortion, and she died. He, f- he was famous for seducing other men's wives. He was uh, demanded worship himself, literally gave himself a title, Lord and God, and he demanded that people worship him. He also loved to, pers- to persecute Christians. Whenever a Christian would come before his court, he would see to it that they would, have to be, they would be asked to deny their faith. So this is the atmosphere. Now, John is on the Isle of Patmos because he's been exiled there by Domitian, most likely, and he's writing to not the church in Asia, We don't talk like that. It's the churches in Asia, the local churches in Asia, the seven that are going to be listed here representatively of the other churches that were in Asia Minor or what we know as modern Turkey. So he's, John, feeling the pressure of persecution, writing the churches that are feeling the pressure of persecution, the temptation to compromise and to defect from the faith or to not finish faithful. And he's writing this, and what we have in Revelation 1, 4 through 8 is a little bit like when you watch a movie and they have the trailer first. Uh, the, the, it's, that's what it really is. Kind of goes over the whole thing in a little, like kind of like the highlights of coming attractions. Here's a little, here's a little um, outline that I'll give you. We'll not preach this outline, but it's, it's helpful. There are three things in verses 4 through 8, really. There's a beautiful benediction, there's a blessing. The blessing given to the ones who are going to read the book aloud and read and have the book read to them. That's in verses 4 and 5. In verses 5b and 6, you have a stirring doxology where John does this thing that Paul often does, and that is he can't think about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, without bursting into doxology like praise. And that's the way it should be for us. You know, preaching, teaching should never be some cold and abstract thing. It should always stir our heart. We should always be on the very verge of doxology. I don't care how bad things are going in your life. I don't care how many enemies you have. I don't care how dark the prospects are in a nation. God's people should always have God's truth embedded in their soul and on the, be on the very verge of bursting into doxology. And that's what he does. So, so here's the beautiful benediction or the blessing. Um, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. And then when he says Jesus Christ, it's almost like somebody poked uh, the right button there and then boom, he goes off into, that was the benediction. He goes into the doxology and listen to it. It's just like a burst of praise all about Jesus and uh, 
we, we, we sang about all that today. We, we, a song on the second coming. Thank you for that. And a song on the blood of Jesus. Thank you for that. And a song on hardship and faithfulness and hardship. So you're, you're all prepared. Let's look into this doxology. It's so beautiful. About Jesus, right? It says, Jesus Christ and these nine things. Faithful witness. Firstborn from the dead. Ruler over the kings of the earth. He loved us. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's made his kings actually a kingdom. He's made us into a kingdom and priest to God and Father, who's God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Say amen. Yeah. To Him. Zach, that was the place. There we go. Okay. See that? Watch Zach, because some of you people need coaching. All right. Thank you, Zach. He's one of those college professors that turns young people to faith in Jesus Christ and not away. Zach has a standing thing. He says, I will give you $10,000 to any of his colleagues who can prove evolution. He says, my money is safe. You can't prove it. Anyway, this is a doxology about Jesus. This is beautiful, right? Then there's this ominous promise. So you have a beautiful benediction, verses 4 and 5, a stirring doxology, Verses 5 and 6, and an ominous promise, a wonderful promise in verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming. Look, look, he's coming. That's what behold means. Look, he's coming. And clouds. And Acts, it says they received him up in clouds, and he's going to come in so in like manner as you've seen him go. He, he's coming in clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This will be the Jewish people, and all the tribes of the earth, these will be the Gentile people, will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Would you agree that is an ominous promise? Jesus is coming. That ought to change everything about how you live. Jesus Christ is coming. That ought to change. You know, get off. Uh, don't, don't be intimidated by silly people with their silly Facebook arguments, their little silly, shallow, weak tea arguments against Jesus on Facebook. He's going to come back, and everyone will be silent when he does. Okay, there you go. Now, that's just getting going here. So now, let me give you some reasons to endure. Reasons to endure that are found here in the text. And really, they're Trinitarian. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The, reason, the powerful reasons to endure. How, how, the question really kind of is, how can you endure faithfully? The pressure that you're going to face, the prejudice, the persecution, the defection of others, or even your own tendency to compromise. How can you be faithful and do what's right and finish faithfully? How can you do that? Well, you have the help of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that should be helpful. Okay, so, so number one, because the eternal God desires to bless you. I know that's really small, but you got to take it on faith. That says, the eternal God desires to bless you. Look, look what it says. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is him who is, who was, and who is to come? God. It's God, the Father. And what is he saying? I wish you grace and peace. That's a big deal. God wants you to be gifted. That's what grace means. He wants to gift you. He's a generous, giving God. Can I get a witness on that? Yeah. Amen. He wants to gift you, and he wants you to have the highest form of peace. So he wants your family to be gifted. He wants your family to be graced. God wants that. That should encourage you not to compromise. God is on your side trying to gift you and grace you, grace you and and give you peace. Here's a second thing. Here's another reason to endure the Holy Spirit indwells you. And this is really a curious way to talk about the Holy Spirit. Revelation does this a number of times. I think it's four times. 
It says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's kind of an enigma. It's kind of a mystery. Hmm. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. Why does he say seven? That's very curious, you know. Here's what you do. In the Bible, what you want to do in apocalyptic literature like this, or eschatological, like uh, eschatology means last things, apocalypse is the word for revelation that means uncovering. It's written in a dramatic way so that it will grab you by the heart. It's written in a dramatic way. He's using a dramatic uh, kind of literature that will, that will really capture you. And so he uses all these symbols. Well, how do you know what the symbols mean? Well, first you look in the near context. You see an example of this in chapter 1 where, where we're talking about the candlesticks. And then immediately, I think it's verse 20, it specifically says that the candlesticks or the lampstands are the seven churches. So there's an interpretive, there's a symbol and there's an interpretation immediately in the immediate context. There are the angels of the churches are the messengers of the churches. It says that, at verse 20, it says, the angels of the seven churches, are the, are the, the seven stars are the angels of the messengers. This could be unique angels or pastors. I like the pastor part, but I don't know if that's true. But nonetheless, it's the messengers to each church. And, and what are they? They're represented by stars symbolically, but what are they? They're, they're either angels or pastors, messengers to the churches. So you, in other words, what I'm saying is this. How can you interpret the symbols of Revelation? You look in the immediate context and you might get an immediate example of what it is. If you don't find it in the immediate context, study the whole book and look wherever else that symbol is used in the whole book, and you will often find an interpretation there. People have done charts like this. They're fun to study. You can find them on the internet. and It'll actually give a lot of those. You can just read them. But then sometimes it's not in the context, in the near context, and it's not in the broader context of the book. But you remember what we said last week, there are hundreds of Old Testament references. Now, there are no direct Old Testament quotations in Revelation, but hundreds of Old Testament references. You really cannot possibly think that you're going to understand the Revelation unless you have a kind of an understanding of the rest of the book because of the symbols that are there. And there are a couple of places in the Bible that talk about the Holy Spirit. is sevenfold work, for instance, in Isaiah 11. And, and some say six, some seven, depending on the Septuagint and so forth. But then in Zechariah, you remember the passage in 4, 6 that says, not by might, but, or, but, but, but uh, not by power and might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I misquoted that. Quote that right for me. Yeah, well, look it up this afternoon. Okay. And not, not by might, it's not right, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That passage is talk, that has a reference to seven, has a candle, seven-fold candlestick. Here's what I believe is true, and Bible scholars believe this is true, is that the Revelation is the book of completeness. It's coming to the end of the story. It's tying up the loose end of the story. It's coming to the climax or the end of the story. And seven, 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 all over the book, sevens are used as a symbol of completeness. And what it's saying here is the Holy Spirit, the only Holy Spirit you will ever need, complete fulfillment of God, the seven-fold Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, the Spirit that can meet every possible need that you ever have. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you're a believer, and you are completely, and if you yield yourself to Him, you're filled, continuously filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so, you say, well, but but me, I have a problem with lust. But you have the Holy Spirit living in you. But me, I have a problem with greed. I want things, things, things. I'm like Lucy on peanuts. I want stuff, stuff, stuff. But yeah, but you have the Holy Spirit living in you, pushing back against that. You say, but I'm given to worry. Yeah, but you have the Holy Spirit living in you. 
God indwells, possesses you. You're possessed. You're a possessed person. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. Whew, that's pretty awesome. You have the Holy... If the Bible is true and you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You ought to be able to face anything coming your way. Listen, in our world today, Christians are facing the worst kind of persecution. Unto death. Little girls being dragged out of their homes in northern Iraq and sold into sexual slavery to the ISIS soldiers because they're Christian, because they're attractive. These terribly abused people, they have to have hope that God is going to ultimately reward them. I will show you that in a moment. How can we endure in a time like this? How can we hope for our children to endure in a time like this? How can we finish faithful in a time like this? Well, first of all, we have God on our side who desires to bless us. Second, we have Holy Spirit live within us, which is no small thing. Third, we have Jesus, and he's our king, and he's coming back to rule. That's the whole point of this book, is Jesus is the king, he's coming back to rule. Now, what's interesting then is you say, I love when pastor has three points, and he gets through them so fast. Ah, but there are sub-points. Yes. Subpoints nine in number. Hey, don't blame me. It's the Bible here. Jesus, there are nine things about Jesus here. And you'll be so impressed how fast I talk about these things. Nine things about Jesus that ought to just make your heart beat fast. This is what the scriptures say. He's a faithful witness. Hey, who can you trust? How about Jesus? He's a faithful witness. If anybody's going to tell the truth, Jesus is going to tell the truth. You can listen to him. He will always, he's been there. He's always been there. He always will be there. He is eyewitness. He is a faithful witness. John calls Jesus the faithful. Can you just think about it for a minute? Yeah, amen. Yes. Think about it for a minute. I love that. Zach. Think about it for a minute. Here's John, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, but he was that fisherman in Galilee. His dad's Zebedee. He was one of the sons of thunder. His brother, James and John. Remember that? Sons of thunder. Knuckleheads. We're always doing knucklehead thing. Man, something got in this guy's water and he really started to grow like crazy. And now he's an elder statesman for God. Now he's thrilled with all the things of God. Before he was a fisherman that was trying to kind of position himself and kind of get a place of position. But now he's an elder statesman. Now he's a man that's filled with the fullness of God. And he can't talk enough about God. He says, Jesus, the Jesus that I've been following, the Jesus that I've been teaching, the Jesus that I've been writing about, the Jesus that I was intimate with in the upper room and so forth, the Jesus that I fished with on Galilee, he's a faithful witness. He's a faithful witness. Second thing he says is, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, others have been raised from the dead. Firstborn from the dead here, the idea is he's unique. Raised in a glorified body, first fruits of the dead, symbolic that Christians, through Christ, have victory over the worst kind of persecution, which is what? Death. He is the firstborn from the death. This, this idiom means Jesus is the conqueror over death. He's a faithful witness, and he's the he's a coming king. He's your king. He's a faithful witness, and he is the firstborn over the dead. He is supreme ruler over all the earth. Don't you like just saying that? He's the supreme ruler over the... You see the Republican debate? Did you watch that? Three hours of Republican debate. I'm serious. Some serious talkers there. They're just talking away. And they all know the answers, and they're ready to run the world. And I'm looking at those people going, help me, Lord. And if they're Democrats, I'd probably say, help me, Lord, then to maybe even more. Just sharing that with you. Yeah. And we could talk about that later. Buy me coffee. We'll talk politics, you know. But what I'm saying is this. 
There is one who's going to rule the world. The government will be upon his shoulders. And he isn't just talk. He isn't just hot air. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the supreme ruler over all the earth. John knows what he's talking about. He's been exiled by a ruler who called himself God. And he's going, hey, here I am on the Lord's day in this island. And Jesus is the supreme ruler over all the earth. He's Lord. He's God. Up in heaven, they're worshiping him. Him. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. He loves us. How about that? He loves us. Think about that. He's God. He's all-powerful. But he's, he loves us. He cares about us. Jesus loves your kids. Jesus, Jesus thinks about what you're thinking about. He loves, he, he's burned with what burdens you. He cares about you. That's what it means. When he loves, he thoroughly loves. He's God. Think about this. This should encourage you, right? I know that there are a lot of people around you that are compromising. I know there are a lot of people around you that don't love the Lord. I know that the circumstances of your future are unclear. But this we do know. Jesus is your king. Holy, God is for you. Holy Spirit is in you. Jesus is the king, right? He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's supreme ruler over all the earth. And he loves you. Imagine that. You ever feel like people don't love you? I get that, that feeling everyone's like, nobody loves Oh, he loves, God loves me. If God loves me, it doesn't really matter that much if you like me or not. I mean, I don't want you to like me, but it isn't that big of a deal. If Jesus loves me, I'm okay. Isn't that good? That's right there. Didn't make that up. And then he washed us from our sins with his blood. Michelle, did you get that one there? He washed us from our sins with his blood. This is language that unbelievers don't get. Washed in blood, but we get it. We love it. We love the songs about the blood. We love the teaching on the blood. Because the blood is that symbol that God used way back in the Old Testament. That he continually used like if you sin, there's going to be death. Sin leads to death. How do we know? Because there's always that bloodshed. And we're all horrified by large amounts of blood. And there was all this bloodshed. And then there were the lambs that were slain, and 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 hundreds of them, and thousands of them, and tens of thousands of them. And then there was the lamb who was slain. This is Jesus. His blood was shed. His life was given so that our sins would be cleansed. You need that. Remember what I said last week? If we could knock the top five sins off your list, you would still be light years from qualifying for God's righteousness, right? If you didn't even ever do again the top five bad things that you do all the time, you would still need to be cleansed and only cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have that. Say amen. Amen. It's good for your soul. Now, on top of that, this is number six. He has included us in his kingdom. In the New Testament there, it says this. It says in the, the New King James has made us kings. And you notice that marginal note is he's made us a kingdom. He's made us a kingdom. And think about that. You know, we say, well, you know, we love America. If you're like I am, you love America. And it's a great nation. We're thankful for it. But it grieves us to see things that we once stood for being compromised, and we worry about what's going to happen with our kids in a nation like this. How are they going to endure? How are they going to survive? Well, listen, you've got to teach your kids that their kingdom is not of this world. They're in the God kingdom. 
There's a loyalty. There's a king there, and there are laws there, and there are be- benevolent gifts given by the great king who governs us. We don't live. We're, this world is not our home, though it's going to be someday. But we're in a kingdom, and he, so he has a faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, supreme ruler over all the earth. He loves us. He's washed us from our sins with his blood. He's included us in a kingdom, and he's made us priests, which means we have full access to God and a responsibility to represent God. Priest, verse 6. And then, again, when you get to 7 and 8, this is kind of the main part of the climax of the trailer of the great movie that is Revelation. And that is, oh, and behold, he's coming back. He's coming back. That's the thing to remember. When everything's leaning against you and all this ugly world is turned against God, wait a minute, one day he's coming back and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And the idea is that it was the Jewish people who killed him and they're going to see him. And the tribes of the earth represents the Gentiles. And they're going to mourn. You understand? There are. This is how you can divide the world. Those who rejoice when Jesus comes or when they come back with him. And those who mourn when he comes, right? Because if you're not right with God, you're not going to rejoice when he comes. It's not good news. Jesus is coming back. That's why the guy's bumper sticker I've always thought was kind of like uh, ironically humorous. Um, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. Well, I'm going to help you to look busy, you know. Or Jesus is coming back and he's angry. I'm like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, and it's not, it's, and your bumper sticker is not going to be any help to you in the day when God, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those who do not believe, returns in power and great glory, and he demands an accounting for your life. You're going to die someday, and Jesus is going to come back, and you're going to stand before God as your judge. Or you're going to be raptured. That would be wonderful as a believer. And you go to the judgment seat of Christ, which is a reward judgment. And you don't have to go to the great white throne judgment and face the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God fell on his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we're bragging about right now. He's coming back to reign. We rejoice, but our enemies mourn and the Gentiles mourn. And he is the eternal God. Look at that. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega. You know those are Greek alphabet, beginning and end. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now that's interesting. Yeah, how many of you have a red letter edition of the Bible? Raise your hand. With you? Yeah. Is that red? That's red. They, they interpret this to believe that's written, that's about who? It's spoken by whom? By Jesus. That's really interesting, isn't it? Think about that. Let's not overlook this. I want you to notice something here. Uh, Look at verse 4, verse 8, verse 11, verse 17, verse 18. And there's something repeated. Remember this. When you study the Bible, often you can tell what God is emphasizing because he repeats it. So when things are repeated for emphasis. So in chapter 1, you have a repetition that's very, it's almost like a chorus. So it's a main thing, okay? And, and here, here, when God identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 4, John identifies God and says, who is God? God is him who is and who was and who is to come. God's forever. This is God, okay? Now look down in verse 8. It says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. It's repeated. And this is a reference to who? To Jesus, who was and is and is to come. God was and is and is to come. Jesus was and is and is to come. This is a help to you, right? You have a professor who thinks he's smart. 
a pseudo-intellectual person out there who, because of whatever reason he's got going on in his life, thinks that he can erode the faith of peop- the childhood faith of people. There is one who is, who was, and who is, and who is to come, and he's coming back to judge, and that man is going to be quiet, silent, before the judgment of God someday. And so, here's verse 11. Notice it says, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. It's repeated. And then in verse 17, and I saw him. This is about Jesus. This is Jesus. Clearly, it's Jesus. It's a description of Jesus, vision of the Son of Man by John. It's Jesus, right? And he's saying God is forever. Jesus is forever, never had a beginning, will never have an end. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's forever. He keeps emphasizing time. He's forever. He's forever. He's forever. He keeps emphasizing that. And notice what he says. It's so beautiful there in in verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then as if he's not done, verse 17, I saw him. I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then verse 18, I am he who lives and who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And that gives commentary to what verse 8 means when it says, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Folks, this is Jesus. Let's just keep this real simple, real plain, and real logical. Jesus really is. He really always has been. He really always will be. He's going to show up on earth someday, and he's going to judge and reward. That's really about all you need to know to endure. He may call you to suffer. He may call you to die. He may call you to have pain. He may call you to live with an estranged mate in your marriage. He may call you to live faithfully, even though your kids don't live for God. He may call you to do something that other people aren't asked to do. But he's going to come back, and he's going to judge, and he's going to reward someday. And that ought to be enough to encourage you to endure. How can we endure faithfully in the face of pressure, in the face of prejudice, in the face of persecution, in the face of defection of others? How can we finish faithful? The answer is by taking the law view. Now this is interesting because when you take Revelation and Genesis, you realize that God is tying, his, tying the, all the loose ends up, if you will. Someone said it this way. I think it was John MacArthur said, in Genesis you have the commencement of heaven and earth, but in Revelation you have the consummation of heaven and earth. In Genesis you have the entrance of sin and the curse, but in Revelation you have the end of sin and the curse. In Genesis you have the dawn of Satan and his activities, but in Genesis, amen, you have the doom of Satan and his activities. In Genesis, you have the tree of life that's relinquished, it's given up. But in Revelation, you have the tree of life regained. In Genesis, you have the beginning of sorrow because of the fall. And in Revelation, you have the banishment of sorrow. That's how the Bible ends. In the place where heaven and earth come together and God makes a temple of all of it, there are no, there's no sorrow. In Genesis, you have paradise lost. In Revelation, you have paradise regained. In Genesis, you have a Savior who's promised. But in Revelation, you have a Savior revealed, a Savior preeminent. Is he your Lord? Or are you your Lord? Barnabas Piper, Barnabas, John Piper has a son named Barnabas. And Barnabas had a rebellious time and he came back to the Lord. He wrote a book called Help My Unbelief. I was reading it this week. Help My Unbelief. And he, read, he wrote something in the book that was just like, wow. Here's what he wrote. His name is Barnabas. He wrote, I wanted to be a follower of Jesus. But at the same time, I wanted to be a follower of Barnabas. <laughs> when I read that, I thought, ooh, that's so true. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, at the same time, I want to be a follower of me. 
fact of the matter is, we a lot of times say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but we really don't want to be a follower of Jesus to do what he says. We want him to follow us and do what we say. He's the like, divine genie in the bottle that you turn to when you need him, you know. And he helps you get done what you need to get done. Kind of like your own there divine superhero. That you just kind of haul him out. And, you know, you got to do what you want to do. Then haul him out when you need him. And you ask him to kind of snap to and do what you do. Because I need you to. That's not the Lord. That's not the, that's not the Jesus the John's talking about in this book. He's the one that comes back and everybody stops what they're doing. <laughs> Amen. Everybody's done with what they're doing because Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Is Jesus your Lord? Do you live like Jesus is your Lord? Are you going to finish faithful? Steve Worth was my brother's brother-in-law. My brother Kevin, pastor, is married to Carolyn. Her husband is named Steve. And Steve is a faithful, faithful pastor. Good guy. Great guy. Went to Grand Rapids School. And he took a church over in Fruit, uh, uh, Fruitport as an associate. And then he went down to Ohio and he worked in a church there for about 10 years. Then he came back and he was a senior pastor at Fruitport. And he was a quiet guy and a solid guy and a faithful guy and a faithful preacher. He's a good guy. Every time you meet him, you're just like, man, he knows the Lord. He loves the Lord. He's a solid, steady guy. But uh, when he was 44 years old, he had his aorta burst and he almost died. And then after that, he had to slow way down in a ministry. And eventually, uh, a few years ago, he had to resign his church and do some itinerant preaching and pulpit supply. And last month, he was driving in Grand Rapids. He had a heart attack, and he went into the presence of the Lord. And so I remember when my brother-in-law died. Chuck, you remember this. Cecilia, you remember that my brothers and their wives showed up at the funeral. Just quietly, I said, well, I'm going to show up at Steve's funeral. So I got in my car, and I drove over to Muskegon, and I showed up at Steve's funeral. Now, when I got to the church, the church he pastored, it was packed. Just like every pastor wants churches to be packed. Amen? And it was packed. Packed the hard way. After you die, everybody showed up. And it was hard to get a seat. And I sat down in the back with my sister, with my brother-in-law, and my family. And I saw the casket was open. I saw Steve's body in that casket. And I sat there in his church where he pastored for years. And I, I looked up there as they were getting ready to go. And then a song began. It was a gorgeous song. It's this simple, beautiful song accompanied with a piano and a cello. And, and the song, it went something like this. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And then there's another verse. And when I'm alone, and when I'm alone, and when I'm alone, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And then there was that last verse, and everyone sobbed and wept while we looked at Steve's body when that last verse came on. And when I come to die, and when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, you can have this whole world. Can you say it with me? But... Give me Jesus. Do you mean that? When you come to die, and you will, the only thing that will matter is is Jesus is really your Lord. James Hamilton wrote a commentary on Revelation, and he talked about Domitian, the, the Caesar that was oppressing John and the churches. 
Did you know how the mission came to his end, what it was like for him? It was interesting. He had the, the whole, he had the, the armies at his disposal. He had people at his disposal. But when he came to his end, he said he became an object of terror and hatred to all, but he was overthrown at last by a conspiracy of his friends and favorite freedmen to which his wife was also privy. Domitian tried to take unto himself titles that belong rightly only to Jesus, Lord and God. Domitian, by worldly standards, he had everything, and he sought to keep his life and make himself God. But he, in the end, lost everything. He was betrayed even by his wife and friends. They took him out to bury uh, uh, his body out when he died on a a simple uh, litter. And they burned his body, and they they mixed his ashes with a a, a servant. And and with with disgust, they buried them. And his name is pretty much just a, 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 a... a by note in history. Nobody cares. But now Jesus, by worldly standards, he had nothing. He lost everything. And he laid down his life for his friends. Paradoxically, Jesus gained everything. Vindicated by his Father. Raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Gave him a name which is above every name. So I say, take the long view and let your heart continually say, you can take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Jesus.